they would go to launches that were happening with very large launch vehicles. And there's always extra payload available because you don't want to go over. If you're over, you're in big trouble. So you stay a little bit under. Just before the launch, they realize they're two or 300. After they've loaded everything, weighed everything, yeah, we're a couple hundred kilograms light. And in the old, old days, they would fill that up with water. So we would stand by. And then if there was extra space, we're ready. You know, we'd have this thing ready to go. So we're back with another episode of the Cold Star Project, which is now the podcast about small sats and space. And I'm excited to have Dr. Rick Fleeter on, who is, wow, man, your history in the space field is just incredible. And we're going to dig into it. You've been in it a long time. Uh, since it was a baby and you've become an adjunct uh, associate professor of engineering at Brown University and you're talking to us from Rome uh, because you're a visiting professor at uh, Rome University and I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation you can probably say that name La Sapienza yeah uh, very exciting also called the University of Rome one right <laughs> make it simple yeah, well, it's, it was very cool, and, and we've been waiting a while to uh, to meet up like this. It's been it's been a, a while, and I'm glad to be able to do it. So Thank I you. wanted you on because you've got this major historical perspective of how this small sat micro sat industry developed. Uh, tell us, I guess, to start off with a bit about your experience getting into what you call microspace. What happened? And I mean, we're in the '80s. What was the mentality then like? Well, I'll tell you, it really, for me, started a little before that because I had been an amateur radio guy since the 60s when I was in elementary school. And they were already, there was already the Oscar, the Orbiting Satellite Carrying Amateur Radio Program that started in 63. So it, it went back almost to the beginning of this. And I met some of those guys, and I thought it was a fairly cool thing that they were doing. When I got to college in the 70s, I started working with AMSAT. And AMSAT was building little satellites, mostly because uh, they didn't have the money or the expertise to do anything bigger. And I eventually became very active with AMSAT, became a vice president of engineering for them. And so to me, that was the normal. So in a way, I wasn't so ingenious <laughs> because I was doing it anyway as a hobby. And what, what, what really got me going was that, you know, I did it through graduate school. I went to Jet Propulsion Laboratory for my real job in aerospace engineering. And there, the scale was so much different. I mean, we were building amateur satellites with $20 bills we were pulling out of our pockets. And uh, then I went to JPL and eventually to what's now Martin Marietta. It was TRW at the time and learned that we couldn't really do anything for less than a half a billion dollars. Wow. And in AMSAT, we were launching satellites for a few hundred dollars. And I was still working with AMSAT at night, <laughs> you know, in a garage <laughs> in Redondo Beach, building satellites for a few hundred dollars. And, you know, I think that the only real leap that I made was to take it all seriously. I think the other hams were doing it because they enjoyed it and it was fun and they didn't see that it could actually be useful. That, you know, and in the real world, I mean, the outside world knew that hams were building satellites, but they were considered sort of toys. And my sort of leap was, no, it could be a lot more than a toy. It could be something very valuable. And the challenge was just, well, Rick, in what way could this possibly be valuable? Because from the big satellite perspective, all of the capabilities were micro, you know, mm -hmm. one or two watts instead of kilowatts. and you know, a, a thousand bits per second instead of, you know, hundreds of megabits per second. And, you know, the size aperture 
where you could fly, if you even thought about flying, an aperture was going to be, you know, very, very tiny, a couple of centimeters compared to several meters on, you know, the real reconnaissance satellites. So in a way, I was just became a zealot. I, I was convinced for another reason, which is that how many people have $500 billion, $500 million, or a billion or two billion, which was the kind of numbers we were talking about back then, very few. And so it kind of left 99.999% of the world out of the business. So for those two reasons, you know, I was kind of convinced that we could do things useful with these things. And also that it wasn't fair to disenfranchise almost the entire world so that a few wealthy countries could afford to have things in space. It was a very exclusive club in 1980 space. Right. So here you are, you realized you do have this capability to produce small satellites on the cheap. How, what did you do with them? How, did, how would you get them into space? Because the launch costs are extremely high. Uh, they, you had an in, obviously, but how did that work? Um, well, you know, there was a synergy, um, like with a lot of ideas, you know, you think that you're kind of pioneering and you're out there all by yourself. But in fact, in a world of six or seven billion people, there's going to be other people with a similar idea. And there was a, a scientist working for the French Space Agency who had insisted all through the development of the Ariane rocket, the same kind of argument, that it was unfair to build, to use national funds to build a rocket that would serve almost nobody within the country. Hmm. And he single-handedly forced Ariane to have a small ring that would support smaller payloads, even though within Ariane, the politics was that we were doing this just to make people happy and there was nothing actually useful to do with those rings. Mm -hmm. And amateur satellite organizations, the US and um, you know, Martin Sweeting's organization at Surrey and the French started building satellites to fit on those slots and they were considered ridiculously small. But they were carrying, you know, we were doing 14 kilograms at the time. In Surrey, when they got started, they started doing 50 kilograms. And that was considered, you know, super small back then. So this thing called the ASAP ring, it was flying on, on Ariane. And it was obligatory by law. Hmm. So that was our first, I mean, AMSAT had other ways of getting launched. And we're still doing that kind of thing. They would put, they would go to launches that were happening with very large launch vehicles. And there's always extra payload available because you don't want to go over. If you're over, you're in big trouble. So you stay a little bit under. Just before launch, they realize they're two or 300. After they've loaded everything, weighed everything, yeah, we're a couple hundred kilograms light. And in the old, old days, they would fill that up with water. So we would stand by. And then if there was extra space, we're ready. You know, we'd have this thing ready to go. And so it was very kind of ad hoc. And yeah. MSAT was very good at at kind of finding parts and you know that were had been discarded or that were spares that weren't used on the real satellite and that are now going to be discarded and also in basically discarded uh mass going to orbit and and so those were the two those were the two ways my earliest pictures of things i worked on from amsad in the 70s i guess it was the 70s were on ariane the original ariane on the asap ring that was the first launch that I got. And we paid nothing. Hmm. I mean, there was no mechanism to charge. I mean, that's an interesting thing about many things when they're new. Nobody knew how to charge for it. So it was just like, talk to the right people and tell them you're interested and show up 
and bolt the thing on and, you know, meet all the safety requirements. There was no industry and there, you know, so it was kind of on a case by case basis. Wow. And it's kind of got that hotel room, you know, airline flight feel, right? The deadline is coming up and right. we've got space available now and we know it. Uh, we might as well do something with it or lose we'll it. We'll make these guys happy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, it's just going to be water anyway. And if you've got people making political noise that we should be serving, hmm. you know, people who aren't in the mainstream, then it, it kind of took the heat off to do that. And I think everybody w was comfortable with that cooperation. As it turned out later on and the thing got more popular, then of course it had to get more organized. Mm -hmm. But on the, on, the, on the other hand, the US eventually did the same. And we ended up with the Esper ring. Um, which I think flew on Atlas and maybe Delta and that's still around and people still, it was modeled in my opinion, after the Ariane ring, very similar looking because we also had that, then that sentiment transferred over to us that we should really be accommodating these smaller payloads. Hmm. And what finally happened was, you know, the first, it was, at first in the U S it was considered ridiculous. And there were quotes in space news that, even accused me of intentionally wasting the government's money just so that I, I could get my little business going, that we were doing nothing of value other than burning up millions of dollars. And it went from that, we had a couple of, you know, fairly important successes in small satellites in the 80s. The criticism after that became, well, they did one or two things, which were niches. <laughs> and there really are, only, are one or two niches. And therefore, it was sort of a special case. And it, it's not you know, it's nothing more than, you know, a peculiarity, like a circus, you know, oddity. And, and it went from there to, you know, a slow, that's a typical adaptation curve, doesn't exist at all. A couple of crazy people do it without any idea of why they're really doing it. One or two people find it useful. So they do something that they think is useful to them without really generalizing it to be useful to everybody. And finally, a few more of those special cases after you've got 10 special cases it starts to look like not a special case anymore wow <laughs> it's just interesting to hear about this this displeasure right and this pushback on on something that today looking at it you know we're in the stream already it's running it's happening right you can, you right. can get into in it way, and, you know in a way I, I i i it's i guess all guys who've been in whatever industry mm -hmm. since the very beginning you know, I, I'm really glad that it happened this way because it was my dream that, and now we have that. People, yeah. all different kinds of people, high school students and college students and uh, hobbyists and people. I did a lot of my work and so did Martin from Surrey outside the U.S., outside, you know, the mainstream countries, you know, America and Canada and the ones that have big space agencies. I did a long series of projects with, in Malaysia and you know worked with several smaller actually you don't think of them as a small country but we had a project in australia at the time the entire australian space agency was running on four million dollars a year <laughs> so you know that there, there were a lot of niches out there and mm -hmm. um i'm really glad that that happened on the other hand i'm really frustrated that um i i think having been through it it gave me a lot more courage of to go after new things. And I think nowadays we consider it sort of a standard thing that you just, you know, you want to do a small satellite, you do it in whatever way you want to do it. But knowing that it went from this total lack of credibility and criticism <clears throat> from the world mm -hmm. and a feeling that these guys were wasting the government's money and were lying and mm -hmm. had, didn't 
you know, I was accused of not understanding how space works and all kinds. It was a rough go for about 10 years there. And um, to realize that an idea can be that out of sync with current reality mm -hmm. and, and have the confidence to say, no, I've seen this happen, that things can turn the corner. It gave me a lot more courage to do other things later on in life. Mm -hmm. That, you know, when I was younger, you give a lot of credibility when you're at a place like JPL and they're telling you that your ideas. When I, I left my, my job at TRW, now Martin Marietta, and my boss, who I was very friendly with, and he became the assistant, the associate director of, of, um, of NASA Marshall, um, said to me, Rick, you're a really smart guy and you've done a great job here. And I don't know why you would give up this job to go fiddle around with toys. But when you decide that it was a really bad idea and you want to come back, I want you to know the door is always open to you. And he was such a nice guy. And at the same time, I was thinking, I'm never walking through that door again. This wow. has got to work. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I, I kind of understand that. Um, huh. I'm going to be having um, some guests on from the Southeast Asian countries as well to get that outside perspective from outside the North American or European-centric yeah. markets. Yeah. And so I'm looking forward to... There's a little bit of a sentiment that I picked say. up working down in that area that they call the South, you mm. know, because there's a sense... <laughs> My wife is from Argentina. There's a sense that the world ignores everything near and south of the equator. And I think there was a definite sentiment there that the space industry was chauvinistic in the sense mm. that it was a big boy game. And if you weren't a big boy, you didn't deserve to be in it. And the left the, you know, what about me? You know, right. don't, don't we merit some sort of a role here? Other than, you know, kind of the way... Um, the way Airbus industry gives a role, you know, you make a rudder trim tab or something like that, but you really don't know anything about airplanes because you're not one of the major hmm. players in Airbus. And the space industry had been a little bit like that before. Okay. Proof of concept is so important. Um, there, was, there was one space company that flew its constellation and got a fine from the FCC and uh, they took a lot of heat from oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and my response was, I get it. <laughs> no matter what the fine is, proving that you can fly a constellation is way more important than that. So what, what was one thing you were saying early on, you're, you're trying stuff out and flying something and just kind of proving that, hey, we can do this. What was one capability, if you don't mind sharing, that, that you would demonstrate? Well, I think, first of all, I think the amateurs in the, back in those days, and it was funny because I worked on a 14-kilogram satellite that we called NanoSat. Mm -hmm. Because in those days, 14 kilograms was ridiculously tiny. And they kind of, by accident, um, did store and forward communications, meaning that you uplinked a message and it was stored inside the satellite. And then when the satellite went around in its orbit and finally was in contact with the person, the station to whom it was addressed, would download that message, which nowadays doesn't seem tremendously miraculous. <laughs> But nobody had done that before. When you look at how the space business operated through Gemini and all those, you know, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, they were either in contact with the ground station or they weren't. There was no, nothing like that of buffering. Buffering was a new idea that came from the digital world. And it was first demonstrated on those little tiny satellites. And, you know, it became super useful because really we, we reach our satellite, like Brown's satellite, about 4% of the time. So 96% of the time, it's totally on its own out there. And then when we hear from it, we get all the data dumped down to us. I mean, 
we kind of nowadays consider that obvious. But, you know, in the 1970s, that was not obvious. Nobody was, there was no email back then. Nobody was right. doing anything like that. There was nothing waiting for you in your inbox. <laughs> so that was one thing. And I, I, I'd say the other thing that we kind of did was, you know, I did a, a series for Defense Department of basically throwaway satellites that were targets and optical targets, not that people were shooting at them, but they would do <laughs> yeah. things that people with telescopes would look at. And those people with telescopes were both in space and on the ground. And um, that was a throwaway mission. It was purposely put in a low orbit, and after a month, it was gone. Hmm. But it was where they wanted it to be. And where they wanted it to be was nothing was gonna last very long, so you wouldn't wanna spend $150 million to put that thing there and then lose it within a couple mm -hmm. of weeks. So we built three of those satellites for about $900,000, which is still a lot of money, but I mean, it was military and they had a million other things on their minds besides just, you know, but it was a small project. We built it in, well, there were six of us. I was the program <laughs> manager. You couldn't really tell. I mean, six people in a room, you know, I had the name tag program manager. We were all just, you know, doing what we needed to do to get it built. <laughs> so um, I think that idea that every satellite does not have to last forever Mm -hmm. And therefore, that battered down the wall of, yeah, but it's not going to be reliable because it doesn't have multiple redundancies and space qualified components. You know, the fact that there were missions that you could, you just want to get it up there, get it into orbit, do something and okay, check that box and on to the next thing. And rapidizing the product cycle, mm -hmm. because when I came into space, the product cycle was 20 years. Mm -hmm which was also to me rather ridiculous because the, already the product life cycle of the components in the satellites was a year, a year and a half. So by the time you built the satellite, the parts that were designed into it could no longer be bought for a 10 years. So you had to buy everything right away be, and put it on the shelf. Be, I mean, it was totally out of sync with the world of modern technology. It was, it was a, to me, an arcane technical niche all to itself. And being a little bit of an outsider, I just thought, this is crazy. And in fact, in my company, we were pretty crazy also. We had a rule that nobody in the company could be a veteran of an aerospace company because we felt that they had kind of been brainwashed into another way of thinking. I mean, for many years, we had that bias, which is just as negative in a way as the other bias, which is if you're not in the space industry, you can't possibly understand it. But it helped us. People came in from HP and from, you know, from, you know, places like Apple and Microsoft and people who were dealing with the product lifecycle and the technology turnover of, you know, the, the digital and consumer world, which the aerospace industry for 20 years or 30 years had insulated itself from. So it was partly that infusion of new people into the business. Right. Okay. Let's move to the academic departments of universities that are now building small sats and they're getting graduate students together and putting these things together and having trouble with schedules and trying to cram all the testing into, you know, the last few weeks of the project that they should have put in, in the last half. And, yeah. uh, maybe some other well, issues. You got that right. <laughs> I know. That's a major, that's a major frustration. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what, what do you think? What would you recommend that these folks uh, do or know or get in their heads about making a small sat uh, before jumping into that project? Well, okay, I'm one of those people in the world who um, is pretty self-contradictory. So you have to get used to that, I guess, about me, even during the span of an interview. 
But having said what I said about the aerospace industry, I really do believe that if you want to have a successful project, you need somebody there who's done it before. And I think there, we've almost gone full circle or, or ex from one extreme to another extreme where now it's considered so easy that you don't need to know anything. And in fact, you do need to know a few things. Hmm. And, and I think you know, that was an advantage that I brought to, brought to Brown when they wanted the, the students wanted to build their own satellite. I've been through a lot of projects at this point, big ones, little ones. And I was hammering away at a few things, which you already have mentioned one of, which is if you don't manage the project to a schedule and get it done on time and cram everything to the end, then it's gonna, you're going to have flaws. I mean, that's true if you write your term paper overnight and try to turn it in at nine o'clock in the morning. It's going to have typos and it's going to have you know, errors in the footnotes aren't tracking right and paragraphs that got put in the wrong place because you didn't have time to read it three times. That's okay for a term paper. So you get a B instead of an A, you're still going to go home, you know, at winter break and go skiing or whatever. But if you do that with your satellite, it only takes one of those paragraphs put in the wrong place and then the mission isn't going to work. And what I don't like about that is that if the missions don't work, it gives the impression that the business is not valid. It's always like, see, we told you that these, and I really want those little satellites to work. In the MSAT, we had a 95% flight reliability record mm. back when I was working with AMSAT. That was better than what we were doing at TRW for you know, a million times more money, literally a million times more money. <laughs> okay, we cheated. The satellites were super simple. But we also were guys like me and girls like me. I mean, it was a pretty diverse group of people who had had, they weren't necessarily engineers or builders soldering things together. They were working in space organizations during the day and they knew, you know, what the ground rules were like. And, and we were able to pick and choose the things that we wanted to copy. So I, I do think it's really handy to have somebody on your team. Maybe you don't want somebody who's been working on gigantic satellites and has never worked on a small set but somebody who's been through a one or two small sat missions is a big is a big plus because the lessons learned and right. the don't go there's you know stick with you right yes having the right people on the team is, is the other thing important. that i would say is we've we've struggled a lot at brown with this question and it's always and when i lecture about small satellites the build or buy decisions we kind of tend to think we shouldn't be stuck on that, but it's really important. You really don't want to build things that you don't know how to build and might not work. On the other hand, there's now this kind of, you know, Amazon.com mm -hmm. satellite manufacturing mentality, just buy the radio, buy the chassis, buy the, you know, power management system, buy the solar panels. Yeah, you can do that. But in the end, what have you done? You know, you, you built, you bought a, what we used to call a heat kit, right? Mm. And, and soldered it together following the, solder this right. wire from, it cut a wire this long and solder it from this terminal to that terminal. And the other problem is it's going to be very expensive. And that's another thing mm. that was a, my, you know, kind of hot button list is it shouldn't be very expensive. It should be super cheap. You know, my kind of goal for small satellites was annihilate aerospace companies. Aerospace companies only exist because the stuff is so complicated. Nobody understands how it works. And you've got to have somebody in there who knows all these experts. Can we simplify it to the point where any reasonably sentient, sentient being can build it? And then it has to be affordable to 
students to high schools to hobbyists to you know a scouting group or or any anybody and so if you get into this amazon.com just you know pick the things off the screen click here click here click here put your credit card and all it all comes in the mail besides not learning anything and maybe your goal isn't to learn anything you just want to get your payload in orbit it's going to give you the impression that a small satellite is one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and the brown guys were very proud of the fact that they did it for under 5000 huh. So there's a pretty big range of, of pricing. And at least I'm glad we have some people out there doing, doing these things themselves and you know, showing that you can put a satellite in orbit that works and does something meaningful mm -hmm. for a few thousand dollars. Right. No, and you just got me thinking. I was thinking about uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis or something. Imagine, imagine if uh, McGeorge Bundy or... Bob McNamara had a, a constellation of small sats instead of a U-2 to take pictures, right, over, over Cuba and find missile systems, right? It's, well, that was one of the, that so was one, of our, one of our challenges was what's good for. And mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things that has launched several companies now is, and I lecture about the, what is resolution. When you say resolution to people, they always think how many pixels, mm -hmm. right? That's resolution. But there's also resolution of, uh, well, not to go through the whole lecture, how, how often do you see the subject? What's your time mm -hmm. resolution? Right. If you see the subject, I've worked on satellites that have a resolution, time resolution of 44 days. Hmm. A lot can happen in 44 days. And if that's your time resolution, then you need a U2. Right. Whereas if your time resolution is you know, basically infinite, that means there's a satellite overhead all the time then you don't need a U-2. As a matter of mm -hmm. fact, satellite is better. So you need a lot of satellites. If you're going to be, if the satellites cost a billion dollars a piece, nobody's going to give you a hundred billion dollars to put that many satellites in orbit. So to get, get high temporal resolution, mm -hmm. that, that was one of the drivers that, you know, drove into people's minds that there might be a use for these little satellites. Hmm. Yeah. And, and cameras in space are not as easy as you might think to your listeners. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a family-run company that makes uh, a lot of this, the cameras that have gone on satellites and space vehicles and that, and uh, they're quite expensive and they have to be really hardy. So what, let's find out, Rick, uh, what directions do you see the space field industry thinking going in? Well, I think, uh, you know, one thing that is, is just human nature and so when I, there's two questions, what direction do I think it ought to go in? Okay. <laughs> what direction yeah. is it going in? Right. right. It's going in the same direction it's always gone in, which is to do whatever we've been doing and just keep doing it. And um, I mean, there's some logic to that, I guess. I mean, the human brain is, is set up for that. If you've got a certain way of hunting and gathering and you haven't starved to death, then maybe that's a good idea to keep doing that. You don't want to keep changing the plan every day because eventually you're going to stumble across a plan that does not work and then you're going to die. And as you say, if you die, you don't get any more chances right. to try out new ideas. So humans have a basic dissonance between trying the new and sticking with the tried and true. But I think what you're really seeing in a lot of the space world today is, you know, okay, microsats are good. Let's put 25,000 of them up. And CubeSats are good, so every small satellite is a CubeSat. And, you know, Apollo was fantastic. Let's do Apollo all over again. Well, I'm not, 
I, I don't really want to say that that's, those are all bad ideas. They might be good ideas, but when you're saying where's the space industry going, that's a little bit different. You know, that's a little bit different question, and um, or where it ought to be going. To me, it's it's in a phase right now. You know, it's a little bit like uh, you go through these revolutions and then you go through a period of relative not revolution. Mm -hmm. And I feel like right now we're in a relative period of not revolution. You know, there's supposedly a revolution in new space, commercial space, which is more of a business thing than mm -hmm. a technical thing. And I'm actually all for that because even in the book that I wrote, my second book that I wrote uh, on microspace, um, you know, my dream at the time was that companies would do it hmm. because it's only when you put the satellite in many, many people's hands that you're going to start to see, like the PC, computers were just accounting machines and scientific machines until Constuber started playing with them. Okay, in terms of what I'd like to see happen, um, and, and okay, you can say that, you know, I'm fairly crazy and okay, you know, it doesn't matter, right? But I think one thing that's fairly frustrating is that we have not got an alternative to the chemical rockets. Chemical mm -hmm. rockets have been around since about 10,000 years ago when the Chinese started making them for various reasons. And um, even von Braun himself felt that the staged chemical rocket was basically a patch, mm -hmm. that it was kind of a clumsy idea to put 95 or 96%. I mean, I go and see the Saturn V at, when I go down to Marshall and it, it really bugs me. Hmm. You know, I'm like, at the cost of tens of thousands of dollars per kilogram, look at all this aluminum. What are we hmm. launching for all that money? We're launching pumps and tanks and fairings and all this earthbound, it looks great on the ground, hmm. but the idea of launching it into space is totally ridiculous. So, um, I mean, there's a little progress in reusable stages and that, that's a good thing. But I, I think that we really need to, what we're doing is we're pushing that technology harder and harder, throwing more money at it, building bigger and bigger rockets. But sooner or later, I mean, you can only build so great of a computer with vacuum tubes. Right. And that was right. ENIAC. And finally, you've, you kind of can't stand it anymore. And it's like, we have to do something better than these vacuum tubes. And that's where I feel like we're getting in space. We, I'm hoping we reach the frustration point of, not that we're gonna be launching people into space on lasers, but not every mission is launching people into space. If you're not launching people into space and your satellites are super tiny, like you know, chipsat to CubeSat to 3U CubeSat size, the idea of getting them from a super low orbit, which you can get to cheaply with a Virgin Galactic or something, to any place you want, mm -hmm you know, within 25 light years with a laser is a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Nobody's really paying, I mean, a few people are paying some attention to it. There's some mm -hmm. diehards out there. But I think that's, and then if you, if that is your starting point, that triggers a whole lot of other thinking. It validates mm -hmm. chipsets because chipsets are the right mass for doing deep space missions with lasers. Mm -hmm. And it also motivates even more I mean, we have this block right now. If it's smaller than a CubeSat, we can't see it, and therefore you can't launch it, which, I mean, you know, that, that's, not a very, that's not very helpful to technology. Mm -hmm. I think if we want to keep making them smaller and smaller, we have to find a way to, you know, we can't make the satellite bigger just so that it's better visibility to the ground. The ground has to learn how to see what's up there. So, you know, I think 
you know, not to go on and on and on, but I think those couple of things would make a, a big, big difference. And in a way, maybe we're shooting too high to make our first goal, oh, let's go to Alpha Centauri with a multi-gigawatt laser mm. on a mountaintop in, you know, Chile. Whereas with a relatively modest laser, not on a mountaintop in the United States, we could be doing a lot with orbit stabilization, with moving things from lower orbit to higher orbit, with doing Earth-Lunar transfers and things like that, which without bringing propulsion with you on board. So that changes the rocket equation too, because really the satellite right now is a fifth stage on a four-stage rocket, because mm -hmm. the satellite itself is 50, 60, 70% propulsion. So that's even one more layer of, you know, and, and we could get rid of that layer alone would be, you know, progress. Right. I, I wonder what Joel Sircell's point of view is going to be on that <laughs> question, because he's, he's got a company that's very interested in taking things that have been brought up into a low Earth orbit and kicking them out to custom orbits. Right. And, but, uh, well, yeah. you know, it's not that we're not going to bring things up to orbit either. Yeah. I mean, you're still going to need chemical rockets. It's like small sats. I never said, and I never wanted to have anybody say, small sats are the new thing and the big sats are dinosaurs and they're going to go away. Mm -hmm. The history of technology is things don't go away. We still mm -hmm. have cars right. and we have electric bicycles and we have motorcycles and we have electric scooters and manual scooters and, you know, electric skateboards and manual skateboards. And every user as technology matures, it becomes richer. You have more choices and you can pick the choice that suits you. If you're going half a mile to get up College Hill, you know, a, a, a bike share electric scooter is not a bad choice. But if you've got to go 10 kilometers, then maybe you want a bike share electric, you know, jump type bicycle. And we don't have that in space. We have chemical rockets and nothing other than that <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that sounds like a kind of like development. Where we, <laughs> it does i mean if you don't portray it as the answer but as a complementary technology that would enable us to do more it's hard to understand why we're not doing that so, mm -hmm. you know i started off as a thermodynamics guy mm -hmm. and my first jobs were in propulsion i worked on a lot of rockets and my company built um some demonstration low-cost rockets back in the very early days of could there be low-cost rockets and AFRL, the Air Force Rocket Lab, was funding us. And, you know, I think about rockets a lot. I just, I abandon it because, you know, it's, it's basically 17th century, 18th century thermodynamics, and it's not getting any better. And whereas satellites, they were getting a lot better. The mm -hmm. technological progress was a lot. And I felt like the rockets aren't getting any better, but if the satellites are 10 times smaller, then it's 10 times cheaper to <laughs> Punch them. Right. So the hell with the rockets, we'll focus on the satellites. But now that the satellites are getting smaller all on their own, I'm thinking, gee, these small satellites need a different kind of propulsion system. And we haven't adapted our, th it's easy to criticize people because they want to go back to the moon and hey, we've been there and all that. I mean, that's a big policy decision that is out of my pay grade. But now that satellites weigh tens of grams to a couple of kilograms, the propulsion solutions are different. And we haven't we haven't even realized that in a way. So I think, you know, I think that's so likely to happen that I'd say it's going to happen. It's just how long does it take us to think a little differently? And, and then when are they willing to make the shift and invest into it? So, so you had a company called Aero Astro uh, and 
I wanted to know, like, what comes first, the idea of what you're going to do or the company? Do you recognize a market need first or do you develop capabilities inside an organization and then go hunt for opportunities to, to use that? Okay, I got a two-part answer to that question uh, because I teach a, a course in entrepreneurism at Brown every year with one of the graduates in my, you know, uh, satellite architecture design type classes who took it like 14 years ago. And what strikes me with entrepreneurs is they want to be entrepreneurs. Hmm. And then, oh, well, we need an idea that we can be entrepreneurs with. Maybe we'll do this, maybe we'll do that. Whereas to me, I didn't ever want to be an entrepreneur. I got my PhD in engineering because I didn't want to be a business person. I wanted to be a technical guy and somebody would pay me and I wouldn't have to worry about commercial stuff because I wanted to focus on technical stuff. And I bounced around from company to company to company with this technical idea that I thought was kind of obvious that we should be building smaller satellites. And it was one frustration after another, after another. So I finally said, look, if I really believe in this idea, then I've got to have some, then I'm going to have to start a company because obviously I'm not convincing any of these CEOs. They just pat you on the head and say, you're, you know, smart, interesting Cute. guy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> interesting is the, Technical is the big company way of saying you're cute, right? Yeah. You're cute, but you're not really worth anything. Right. So um, I was a reluctant entrepreneur. You know, I, I really didn't want to do it, but it was the only way to get where I wanted to go. And, you know, and I thought, how hard could this be? You know, I mean, I've done other hard intellectual things in the world. I just started reading about what you need to do to run a company and, mm -hmm. you know, talking to people and experts and brought myself up to speed. And it was a fairly... A uh, rough ride for me because I wasn't really prepared to be an entrepreneur, but I also didn't want to fall into the trap of techies who start a company and then are overrun by the business people and eventually thrown out of, you know, kind of that happens all the time. So rather than that, I decided to get smart about it and kind of, I got fired one time, but Steve Jobs got fired one mm -hmm. time. I was kind of proud of that, you know, <laughs> that they fired me one time. So that's in a way what I meant about what comes first. To me, what comes first is you've got a driving belief in something how come this isn't happening and you're going to start your own company because i was a guy on a campaign and that's why but most people are not like that so then your question is the next part which is we at first tried to build a capability and demonstrate it and then we thought you know you build it they will come like that movie which i never saw about the baseball field in the middle of nowhere um and that idea didn't work for us because um there were no small stats and there was no small set industry and there were no investors at all in the aerospace business. And you'd go to Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto and people would tell you, you were very, it was a replay of the same video, the same movie that I was getting at work. So um, eventually we concluded that we had to sell it and then build it, which was harder in a way. Um, but it's less expensive. All you need are airline tickets and, and, you know, you don't need, we thought we were going to build mm -hmm. a satellite, launch it, and demonstrate it in space. Instead, I just ran around the world proselytizing about small satellites until somebody said, you know, well, somebody was desperate enough with no other solution that would work for them that, you know, they were willing to give it a try. <laughs> and uh, so that's how we got started. And now the course I teach is called Lean Launchpad. And Lean Launchpad is all about that. I mean, it was invented totally outside of my brain by entrepreneurs in, in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Uh, Steve Blank is the guy who's uh, associated oh, okay. with it. Yeah, yeah. And his thesis is basically that. Yeah. You know, don't 
build up a whole country over, over your, what's in Mm -hmm. your brain about what's going to work. Yeah. Talk to everybody, see what they actually want to buy and then, you know, build it Mm -hmm. rather than you writing a business plan out of your own brain. And this would be really cool. And customers will pay this much. And there's this many customers. You don't know any of that. It's all a fiction in your own head. And then quite often nowadays, the investors will pour that money in. And when it doesn't go, not only are they mad, but you don't look very good when you get your next idea and try to do it the second time. It's much better to get it to work the first time. Hmm. So I'm pretty hard over, maybe I've brainwashed myself teaching this course, that the way to go is talk to everybody, like you say about Mm -hmm. Steve Blank. And eventually you're going to be in the business, even though you've never built, you've got the supplier chain, you've got all the things that, you know, we call the canvas, right? Mm -hmm. He calls the canvas, which is all of the various connect, who your suppliers are, who your, what your distribution, who your customers are. You know, at that point, you're kind of in business, you backed into it, but you're in business. Now all you need is your customer either to give you the money or to commit in contract to giving you the money, assuming you build it. Mm-hmm. And that's financeable. Right. So um, I think that's the way to go. Huh. I really, as flaky, it opens the door to a lot of flakiness, but it also closes the door to a lot of, look, investors are flaky unintentionally <laughs> because they don't have a crystal ball about what the technology right. is going to be. And they don't understand who the smart, they don't understand the, you know, we've had a lot of ideas, maybe one of the more successful ideas we had in AeroAstro that helped the value of the company at least was a communication systems idea, which the consultants all said was never going to work. And, uh, you know, we found someone desperate enough to build one and it worked. So investors make those mistakes. You know, they invest in things that can't work. They invest in things that, you know, aren't really going to be successful businesses. So yeah, you open the door to a little bit of flakiness when you build the canvas and you haven't actually built anything yet, but I'd rather have 10 of those, which cost $50,000 a piece, then one $5 million, you know, order of magnitude, bigger disaster, which doesn't work anyway, because we couldn't predict the future. Okay. Given, well, I mean, the whole American society works a little bit on that theory that we can't yeah. predict the future and we don't know what the best strategies are. So we have, you know, 16 companies building cello strings, but it's okay, you know, because if they're successful, they'll sell some. <laughs> and if one of the ideas is flaky, they're not going to sell any. So it's okay. Right. Well, I'm, I'm super pleased to hear you mention Steve Black. Actually, uh, if our, our listeners are interested in finding out more about that, they can just Google Steve Blank uh, customer development, Steve Blank customer development, and you will find piles of free video series of short videos that are, you know, two, three minutes a piece that will get you in the right direction. So there's a lot of information yeah. out there. And then maybe you could go take the course at Brown too. <laughs> I'm interested. Now that I know that it exists. So that's great. So Rick, let's finish up with this. What is the next big thing now that small sats are normal? At Cold Star Tech, our mission is to make space boring and that fits right into it. It's, you know, small yeah. sats are normal. What do we do next here? Well, um, I guess, uh, you know, it's not that I know what the future is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna to be. Um, and I think there's a few things that are obvious that the future is going to be. Uh, it, a long time ago, and I wasn't the only one who felt this, I was heavily in favor of space tourism. Not because mm. I think it's so important that we can be space tourists, but I felt that if we had space tourism, that turns on the consumer side of the economy. Mm-hmm. That's going to t- 
turn up launch frequency incredibly, and not just so that Elon Musk can put 25,000 satellites in orbit, but so that, you know, a, a guy like me who worked in the field all his life and has some savings and isn't going to live maybe long enough to spend them all might say, you know what, this is something I've always wanted to do. And I mean, there's a lot of people like that in the world mm. who, who can afford $250,000. I'm not sure I'm going to spend that, but I don't think it's going to be $250,000 mm -hmm. forever. I remember how much my first DOS computer cost in 1982 dollars <laughs> it was ridiculous it was it was two months salary right so and my wife let me know that at the time <laughs> but we a lot of us spent that money but after enough of us spent that money it became one month salary and then became one week salary and now you can get pretty nice computing hardware in the form of a smartphone or a tablet for a couple hundred dollars mm -hmm. so i i really I hate to say it, but I really believe that space tourism is going to be a big thing, at least suborbital tourism and maybe a brief stop in orbit. And I think that will be transformational more than we give it credit. Hmm. Because one of the things that I think we have to break out of in space is that it's important, that everything hmm. we do in space has to be important. Brown specifically built a toy as a satellite huh. to make the point that who are we to decide that something is worth doing or in, in a capitalist society, what's worth doing is what people want to spend money on. And really, what are all those fancy satellites that we all take so seriously doing anyway? They're mostly sending soccer games and, you know, the World Series and a bunch of, you know, old movies and stuff like that all around the globe. And, you know, relatively trivial telephone video conversations where the same old family members are looking at the baby and everything. We're not changing you know, we're not discovering new worlds out there. We're 90% of what we're doing is doing fairly, you know, normal things. And so I think space needs to get over that idea that we have to always be pushing the frontiers of humanity because 1% of society cares about that. And the other 99% wants to do relatively normal things, including entertain themselves, which there's nothing the matter with that. There's gigantic industries. To do. So I think we have to get over ourselves. And and I think we will get over ourselves because there's money to be made there. And I think that that is going to teach us a lesson that we didn't think we even needed to learn, which is that people really matter. Hmm. That it isn't enough to tell the public, oh, you can watch three people walk on the surface of the moon. I mean, I did that, in, you know, when I was in junior high school. And I was at once like fairly thrilled about it and another way very disappointed about it because I thought like, who are these three people? It doesn't touch tomorrow. I'm going back to junior high school, just like always. These guys had a great time, and I'm just sitting here, right, staying up late to watch TV with my parents. It, it, space needs to turn that corner. We're never gonna turn all the Americans into astrophysicists. And um, the other thing that I think, having grown up in the 60s and been a child of, you know, a, a young high school student during the Vietnam War and all the protests and the city burning that went on, I really believe space has to be more relevant. You know, living in a college, two college environments at once. Yeah, space is interesting to the techies, but what's on the minds of students is not whether we land on Mars or not, hmm. and, or on the moon or not. You know, they kind of consider that their grandfather's Oldsmobile. And what matters to them more is, is the planet going to be habitable when they grow up? And, you know, is there still going to be winter, spring, summer, and fall? And our micro and nanoplastics going to be floating around in the air and the oceans. And you know, we're all going to be walking around in mass. And there have been some movies about that, which, you know, are a little truer than we like to believe that they were when they first came out. So 
I think space needs to re-engage with reality. Mm -hmm. We have a little bit of an idea that we do stunts, you know, that we mm -hmm. land a rover on Mars and that we do Jupiter, Pluto fast flyby, and those are fantastic. You know, my, my wife is always saying to me, Rick, how come you're not working on one of those missions? I mean, they're cool, they're super cool. And, but they don't address the major, major problems that are on people's minds. And I don't think that just because a problem is super important and on people's minds, makes it too banal to do in space. So I think a relevance dose would be a good thing for us because we've been on a 60 year trip of, wow, we can do this, wow, we can do that, and isn't this, and we keep thinking, okay, we went to the moon, so therefore we have to go to Mars. It's again, what put food on my plate yesterday is gonna put food on my plate tomorrow. Hmm. And I don't think so. I think showing that we have the capability to you know, leap tall buildings in a single bound, it's like, okay, what's that good for? You know what I mean? If all Superman ever did was leap tall buildings in a, in a single bound, Superman wouldn't be a superhero. He saved people. You know, he did things that touched people and he and society loved him, you know, in the comic strip. And I think space needs to, now that we can leap tall buildings in a single bound, do something with that that addresses the major, major problems that, that the world is facing today. So that's my soapbox about, you know, where I... Maybe that's injecting too much of myself, but I actually oh, think I hear it. <laughs> sooner or later, you know, that's going to be the driver in space is what people want. People want to be entertained. They want to go to space themselves and not just watch three guys, you know, or women or men or whatever, you know, a Chinese one, whatever diversity they have. It's still, they're not diverse. They got multiple PhDs. They're test pilots. They've spent dedicated their lives to going to space. Well, what does that have to do with me, you know, working in, you know, a mall, nothing. I'm never going to be one of those people. Even as a college professor, I'm never going to be one of those people. So where's the connection between me and space? And space tourism is a big part of that. And if space is saving my world so that I feel like my kids and their kids are going to grow up in as nice of a world as I grew up in, in, you know, suburban America, I'm, I'll pay for that. You know, and I think a lot of people would pay for that. I'm not sure they're going to pay to watch it. People with seven PhDs and test pilot wings land on Mars and plant the flag and congratulate themselves on how hard it was. Hmm. It's like that lasts, you know, 30 seconds. Right. But they will to fly into orbit and have their imagination triggered by seeing the world yeah, that they live because in. Because I think you'll, you'll start to have a core of thousands of people who've done that experience. And that's like having a core of thousands of people who are connected to the internet. Then everybody wants to be connected to the internet. And then people are going to start worrying about whether it's scalable. If you remember those scalability wars of the internet, mm -hmm. can we launch a hundred rockets a day? You know, that's a great problem to have. You know, that happened to the internet. At first, nobody was using it. A couple thousand people started using it. All of a sudden, a couple million people wanted to start using it. And it was like, can the system even handle that? Then a couple million people wanted to start using it for telephone conversations, for video conversations, right. for HDTV. Boy. And, you know, it really drove the thing to where we are today, which is fantastic compared to where we were 20 years ago. So I'd love to see that happen in space. Fantastic. Well, this has been Dr. Rick Fleeter of Brown University joining us from Rome, where he is teaching at the Fancy Rome University number one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I like to hear you say it. And I know you write in Italian too, which is pretty awesome. Thanks for being here today. Okay. It was really fun. Thanks. <laughs>